You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. In this episode, I speak with Larry Payne, who the LA Times named one of America's most respected yoga teachers. Larry is founding president of the International Association of Yoga Therapists and director of the Yoga Therapy RX certification program at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. In our conversation, we talk about how meeting some of the legends of modern yoga inspired his move from working as a successful advertising executive to becoming one of the founders of yoga therapy in America. Larry shares some great stories of his time with TKV Desikachar and offers some invaluable career advice to yoga teachers and therapists. I first met Larry a number of years ago when I was in LA studying with Srivatsa Ramaswamy, who I interviewed back on episode 3 of the podcast. When I biked over to see Larry at his home in Marina del Rey and take a class with him, I found him to be so incredibly warm and welcoming, and it was really inspiring to see the community that had formed in his little backyard yoga studio. So it was a real treat to check in with him again, and incredibly humbling to hear how he's been a fan of my work over the years. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Larry Payne.
Hey, Larry, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, hey, Brian, I'm a fan of yours, so it's a pleasure. <laughs> thanks a lot, man. You're um, you know, I thought we'd start this off by talking about something that we share in common, and that's that we uh, we both worked in advertising and marketing before becoming yoga teachers. And I'm curious about what led you to give up your career in marketing to pursue becoming a yoga teacher. Well, as you know, because I always admired what you 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 know do with media, and uh, you know, and, and it shows. Uh, for what I'm about to say is whatever you've done in the past, you take it with you. So what happens in the yoga world is that honestly, something like almost 85, 90% of the yoga teachers don't have the business gene uh, marketing, you know, because they're there for the beauty of yoga and so forth and so on. So both of us, you know, had that. Uh, but what really changed me is that, you know, I, I was uh, once the West Coast manager of advertising sales for McCall's Magazine. And as you know, the, the better you do, the more they give you. So they just kept piling on, you know, specialty magazines and everything. And to the point where I started developing like a twitch you know, nervous to a dick. <laughs> and then my back was hurting me. You know, it always felt like I had a dog bite in my back. And Los Angeles has some really good doctors and so forth, but nobody could figure this one out. So uh, they had a, a big promotional meeting for all the top salespeople. You know, they took the upper 1% and they took us some island and we were all there. And I remember this was a turning point for me. I'm I'm looking around the room, and every person in the room had a nervous tick. <laughs> For real. And then they handed out these uh, little baseball bats with a plaque. I still have it. It says, nice guys finish last. <laughs> and I oh said to myself, get me out of here. <laughs> it's like, when I came home, I was sharing this with my running partner and he said, Larry, let me take you to a yoga class. So he literally dragged me to my first yoga class and it was, um, it was an older woman and fortunately, and she was a disciple of Indra Devi. Her name was Renee Taylor. And then when I went in there, I was watching these people like warm up and there was mainly women. And I just go, I can't possibly do that. And she goes, just do it. You can at the end. You'll get a big surprise. You know, a lot of people have heard the story because it's really true. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I did what I could. And at the end of it, she did like a 10, 12-minute shavasana. And at the end of that, my tick was gone. My back pain was gone. And I felt like, honestly, like I've been smoking something. It was just so high. And it lasted for four hours. And I'll never forget it. And I never looked back. I went after that because she was far away to my, you know, my area where I live near um, like Venice. And I got a yoga teacher, a wonderful man, Raghavan Das, and I never looked back. I just kept, went forward from there. So how old were you when you did that first yoga class? I was old. I was like 37. Yeah. That's a, you know, that's around the age, you know, I, I think I was 35 when the stress of 
the advertising world really got to me, you know, where I just got to a critical point where like you, I had back issues. I was completely stressed out. I wasn't sleeping well. I had developed a drinking habit because part of the culture of advertising required that after work, you know, after doing your 12 hours, you go up for We've drinks. We've all watched uh, Mad Men on TV. <laughs> I mean, we, yeah, and, you know, we, we would have uh, – beer clients and they would send beer into the office and so it was just oh, a part God. it was a part of the culture you know and if and if yeah. you weren't a part of that you got left behind you weren't part of the team and there so, were the two-hour lunches you know and the three-hour lunches and the you know two or three martinis fortunately i wasn't a big drinker hmm. so uh i didn't get too hooked into that but um it was around and you know the other thing it's good that we both left because the life expectancy in advertising is something like a nine years lower than the norm. <laughs> wow. I mean, I can believe it. It really does burn you out. So oh. like for me, it was around 35, you know, it hit this critical point where I just said like enough is enough. I got to make a big change. And that's when I got deeper into my yoga practice. Cause it was the one thing that I could do that always made me feel better. Who and, was your first real yoga inspiration? Uh, you know, I, I got kind of interested in yoga back in my teens because, uh, I'm a lifelong musician and, you know, in my teens, I got introduced to the music of India through Ravi Shankar and some tapes that I would get from the local library. And, uh, I think that's what kind of piqued my interest at first. And so I went, you know, at that time it was in the nineties at some point I was in a smaller town in Canada there was no yoga studios around, but um, I found this guy, Bert Peters, who is this like six foot four Dutchman who had <laughs> gone, gone to India to study with Iyengar. And uh, uh-huh. he was teaching in like the basement of a community center, I think. And uh, somehow I found him. He must have had a flyer up or something. And, you know, I was completely fascinated by him and by these stories he would tell about going to India and all the cultural differences. And uh, the thing I remember about those early yoga classes was that, you know, he was asking us to get into all these like strange postures. And, you know, looking back, I can see he definitely had that Iyengar influence where it was quite strong and he was like pushing you into downward dog and stuff like that. Um, And so, you know, yeah, it's something I'd explored for a long time. But, um, you know, like 15 years after that, I went to a yoga class and the teacher for the first time really instructed me on how I could connect breath and movement together. And that was like a complete eureka moment for me. And that sent me on this quest to learn about uh, vinyasa, which led me to Krishnamacharya um, and seeking out people who had studied with him and Desikachar. And so... At a certain point, I met uh, Mark Whitwell, who'd studied with Desikachar, and he showed me these like really simple principles of practice, like how to put everything together, breath, movement, and awareness. And that was like this incredible homecoming feeling for me. It was like the thing I'd been searching for all those years. And so the first big influence for me, I think, was uh, Desikachar and Krishnamacharya. And, you know, that's how I ended up meeting you because, you know, I was trying to figure out 
why all these different teachers that I've been exposed to, like Iyengar or Patabi Joyce, why their yoga looks so different when they had the same common teacher. Exactly. And so I was like on this kind of archaeological expedition to understand the core teachings of Krishnamacharya. And so I was seeking out people who had studied with him and Deskachar. And, uh, you know, so I was in L.A., when I met you studying with uh, Srivatsa Ramaswamy at Loyola Marymount for a month. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, ever since then, I just haven't found anyone who has put together those teachings uh, in a way that's so practical and relevant to me in my modern life. So yeah, the, the big inspiration. Also, yeah, uh, go ahead. Thank you. Um, you also will find this, that right now, about 80% of all the yoga classes taught in America are some group classes, some form of flow. You know, they all have different names, you know, vinyasa flow, this flow, you know, meditative flow, you know. And uh, that flavor, you know, is a mix between kind of Iyengar and Batabi Joyce uh, was really for people like that were young boys. It really was. And Yet that's what we still teach. So now there was a study that ran for 10 years and they had 30,000 people over 50 that went to emergency rooms because they went to the wrong yoga class. Wow. So that bracket, it's 40 something. I mean, 50 is the easiest one because it's like, you know, there's demographic groups and so forth and so on. But clearly at 50, like it should be different. And, what people don't realize is that Krishnamacharya himself, who, like you said, was, everybody got different things from him. He was always changing. He started teaching differently when he got his first ever middle-aged Western male student who was the ambassador to India from America. His name was Dr. Albert Franklin. And my opinion, that's where the roots of Vinaya Yoga started, you know, teaching differently. And these things take a long time to get to America. So, um, and there's been all kinds of you know, political, you know, upheavals of the name in yoga and all that. But the principles um, are really helpful, especially for people like over 40, over 50. Uh, it's okay to bend your knees. It's okay to bend your arms and that the breath is really important. I mean, that stuff, you know, if you're in the flow class, that's just not happening, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's 120 million people in the U.S. over 40, and yet, you know, uh, until recently with things that you and I are doing, they they don't really have a place. Uh, they, You know, they're going in those kind of classes. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I end up calling mine prime of life yoga uh, just because of what I'm focusing on. Mm -hmm. But um, these are principles that came from Krishnamacharya through his son, Deskachar, to me. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really kind of the market that I've been trying to tap into is people who are already vinyasa junkies. And it's like, if I can attract them and give them some of these principles and show them how you can adapt the practice to their age and body type and whatever they've got going on physically, that they can get all the enjoyment out of a flow practice, but actually make it safe and effective for themselves. Yeah. Now, yeah. you can definitely uh, just use these principles and adapt it to almost any kind of a class, you know. 
um, starting with, you know, forget about what you used to do. Don't push yourself into something, you know. It's like <laughs> it has to be something that's user-friendly uh, or you're going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just I wanted to go back and talk to you a little bit about when you met Desikachar. Um I know that when you started to investigate yoga, you did a lot of travel and you and you sought out some of the famous teachers in India. And I'm wondering like what it was about TKV that led you to become his student and to carry on his teachings for so many years. Well, it didn't happen right away, you know. Um and what was really kind of fun is that um for the only time in my life I, I you know, I took a sojourn for a year. You know, I had some money from advertising. I sold one of my houses, and um, I knew that I wanted to go out and explore, you know. And so I, uh, McCall's Magazine, who I worked for, was unbelievable. When I told them I quit, they said, don't quit, we'll give you a sabbatical. You know that's unheard of in advertising. <laughs> you must have been good. <laughs> yeah, I was good. So they, I had a press pass from McCall's Magazine. I was from California. And I was interviewing people with my tape recorder and camera, and that guy, hardly anybody turned me down. Uh, and so, you know, I started first in Europe, Scandinavia, et cetera. But when I got to India, I knew that was, you know, really, you know, the place. And um, so uh, I went to Iyengar first, but uh, uh, before I went to Deskachar. And but the very first training I had was Shivananda. I was one month uh, training deep in the south of India with Swami Vishnu Devananda, which was a good thing. And then I, you know, started this. You know, a lot of people at that time were all on the same path. You know, they're all traveling the same road. You know, and you'd run into a lot of people from Europe and America and everything that were, you know, going to the same places. Um, so. Um, I was staying uh, somewhere with Richard Miller. This is another famous story. Hmm. And there, there's things called aerograms in India, like an envelope you fold it up and you, you, know, you send it. And so Richard Miller sends an aerogram to BKS Iyengar, and he says, uh, Dear Mr. Iyengar, I'm here from California, and I've been observing a lot of different yoga classes. I'd like to come and observe your class." So BKS sends him back and says, nobody observes my classes. I suggest you go somewhere else. So I wrote him there, dear Mr. Angar, I just, you know, I've come here from California and I'm just so dedicated to you and I want to come and experience your classes. And, then, and he says back, oh, please come. I don't know how much I can teach you, but just come. <laughs> So you were hanging out with Richard, and you were there when he got the response, and you decided that you could take a different yeah. tact with yeah. Iyengar and appeal to his uh, ego and his. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's brilliant, man. It was pretty cool. I mean, he gave me the royal treatment, and you know, some of these stories I've said before, and if they repeat, they're true. You know, um, he couldn't have been nicer to me. You know, he dressed up and gave me an interview, <clears> and then he. He invited me to all three of his classes. He had a level one, he had a level, uh, intermediate, and then he had a uh, therapy class. So I was going to all of them, but the level two class warmed up 
by standing drop over backbends. Wow. <laughs> and so I had to literally lay in the bathtub for an hour every morning <laughs> because I was so sore from that class. It was unbelievable. Hmm. But what I found was that um, I didn't like the way everybody, he was yelling at everybody. You know, it's like he yelled at his kids and the kids yelled at us and he was just a screamer. And it reminded me of being in a martial arts class, mm-hmm. which I, I've had some training. And so he was kind to me, but I didn't like that, you know, but I, I was first with Iyengar, you know, and, and, you know, even though I met Deskachar, I didn't really go to him exclusively until I came back to India the second time. So I, I was, you know, first with Iyengar, and, and Deskachar at that time was a little soft for me. Iyengar was too hard, he was too soft. And then as I learned more about everything, I, I really saw the wisdom with Deskachar. And um, so then um, I, I totally dedicated myself to him, and he asked me to do a tribute to his father, uh, which I made into a video at the time and later made into a DVD. Um, and, um, you know, I saw him probably five times there, and then I saw him wherever he was in the world. I followed him to Israel to, you know, to North Carolina, to Colgate University. And but one of the funny stories was that, you know, I played a lot of football in my day. And so we were at Colgate and, and it was summertime and the football team was doing their double days and practicing. So I was over there hanging out with them, you know. So I came back and I said, sir, I said, why don't you make a video for the football team and the soccer team, you know? And he looked at me, and the lady um, who was the president of Vinny Yoga America, the original, Mary Lou Skelton, was buddies with the football coach. So she went and talked to him. So the next day, Deskatar says, we're going to do it. He says, you're the model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen the so, video, I think, on YouTube, right? Yeah, it's on YouTube. It's on my YouTube, yeah. Samati International yeah. YouTube. <laughs> and I'm like 40 years old. You know, I'm 74 <laughs> now. And uh, it, it was like that's he did what was right for them, and what was right for them was more of the flow kind of stuff. And but it was a funny moment, and uh, it is priceless video of Deskachar, uh, and also of, of Mary Lou Skelton, who was really the person. She went to India and and discovered him and brought him back to Colgate University, and that's how he got known in the United States. Mm-hmm. Do you remember your first meeting with Desikachar? Like, how did that happen? Did you go just show up at uh, the Mandaram or did you go to a class or how did that work? Well, what happened is that um, I didn't even know who Desikachar was when I first went to India. And I had a, I have a cousin, a blood cousin, who dropped out of school, took acid, dropped out and you know he he was starting to be a physicist and his father is a physicist so he had that gene and he went to india and he became a sadhu hmm. and just wandered out in the hills and then he would park himself at the um, philosophical society which is very near adiar where deskachar was in madras so my mother told me that he was there so i went and uh, I went up to the lady. There was a lady who was the manager there for a, a 
a zillion years. Her name was Norma Shastri. Everybody within the 40-year period went through and knew her. It was the Philosophical Society. And I went up and I said, I'm looking for my cousin who might be here. And she said, what's his name? And I told her, and she said, you're his cousin? <laughs> yes. <laughs> You'll find him in the library wearing white sadhu robes, and he has horrible B.O. and glasses. <laughs> so I went over, and he was he stood out in the crowd. And uh, he, I sat down, and I said, Ray, I'm your cousin. And he just looked at me and just stared like he was on acid or something. You know, I was like, wow. So he's the one who really told me about Deskachar, Krishnamacharya. You know, I went there with Shivananda, and I knew about Iyengar, but I didn't really know that much about you know, he said, well, why don't I go with Iyengar's teacher, you know? And so um, I showed up over there. And honestly, until this point, nobody had turned me down for an interview. And when I asked to meet Krishnamacharya, Deskachar says, uh, well, sir, he doesn't usually see people and so forth and so on. So he says, um, if you would like to, you know, take some courses from A.G. Mohan, uh, yeah, I'll see what I can do in the next couple of weeks. So I had to wait two weeks to meet Krishnamacharya. Hmm. And I also, I couldn't study with Deskachara the very first time. He gave me A.G. Mohan, who was a great teacher. Um, and so at the end of two weeks, Deskachara comes out with his father. Now, I didn't know the tradition that you're supposed to touch people's feet. You know, that's a very, you know, in America, we go, what? But in India, that's a sign of respect for your teacher or somebody elderly, you know. So I just stood there and I gave him the namaste and he stared at me like, who in the uh, are you? <laughs> he just stared at me and he turned around and walked away. <laughs> and that was the first meeting. Wow. So when I came back, though, Deskachar agreed to see me, and then he knew that I, you know, had the, the you know, the, 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 the marketing gene. So he said, you know, you're the only person I've asked this, but I want someone to do a tribute to my father in America. Would you do? And I said, yeah. So then he told me, like, how to, you know, meet his, greet his father, how to keep your eyes on him when you come and go, touch their feet, all that stuff. So Krishnamacharya had broken his hip, and he didn't want to get an operation, so he was bedridden for the last, like, 15 years of his life, 20 years. And um, so he was in this bed with all these straps and things so he could do all of his routine, and he was constantly reciting by memory all these old textbooks because when he learned, it was done by memory, you know. Mm -hmm. And so... Oh, my God, it was a big deal. So he brought me in this time. Instead of ignoring me, he gave me a ceremony. Krishnamacharya did a, like a 20-minute ceremony and blessed me and all this stuff because I was going to do this big project. So that was like a totally different thing. And then uh, Deskachar started to not only see me, but for the next two times I came, I saw him and A.G. Mohan privately every day, both of them. Mm. So they, I, I got a little lucky. They were teaching you together? Uh, separately. Like I'd see one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Hmm. And uh, 
what were those sessions like? Were you focused on asana and breath work, or were you also doing some chanting? Um, you know, when you go to see Deskachar, what's interesting is he doesn't usually lead what you're going to do. And he'll just sit there and shoot the breeze with you until you ask him something. (laughs) So it isn't like, you know, you're going to come and say this, you got to ask him what you want. Okay. So I wanted to learn about the back. Okay. So our main focus, in addition to gathering all the information about his father on the second visit was about the back and yoga therapy. So when I would see him privately, it would be about yoga therapy. Um, and he would see Gary Crafts, I would be about something else, you know. Right. Um, so that is what, I, you know, how I kind of led it. And, um, you know, because of that, uh, when I came home after about the third one, um, I was able to start with Dr. Leroy Perry, the first yoga therapy center in Los Angeles, and the first of its kind in America that was like a sports medicine, uh, and it had um, integrative medicine team. There was a neurologist there and chiropractors, physical therapists, acupuncturists, all of that, and they were actually working it into insurance back then. That was in 1984. Mm. Um, and uh, so... His training gave me enough that I could start here, you know, and then a bunch of other things, you know, from there. So when you met Desikachar, were you still dealing with your own back issues? Um, Yes, and he helped me a great deal. Iyengar gave me something kind of briefly that honestly, (laughs) I'm to give, to be fair to him, if I would have seen him more times, he probably would have helped me out, but what he gave me, like, didn't help me. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was having me do real extreme stuff, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, to be fair to Iyengar, you know, if I could have, you know, stayed longer, I mean, I was there with him probably like two weeks or something. Yeah. Uh, every day. Um, I, I'm sure that I would have gotten better. But when I went to Descartes, it was such more of a gentle approach, which, um, I, you know, which was what I really needed. Um and, you know, there, there's so many kinds of back problems, mm-hmm. um, as I've learned. But the majority of the back problems in America, in my opinion, have something to do with sitting too much. I mean, sitting is the new cigarette. It's like, you know, you think about we wake up in the morning, we sit on the edge of the bed, we bend forward walk in the bathroom, we sit, bend forward, we get ready to go to work, we lean over the sink, bend forward, get in the car, sit, bend forward, go to a computer, any corporation, there's, you know, at your desk, you're bending forward, come home at night, look at your personal emails, see your eyes get blurry, in the meantime, you're looking down at your uh, smartphone, dude. we just yeah. bend forward too much. So the most common back problems that pop up, I think, for Western people are in that category of rounding too much. Mm. So they pop up, they're like, you know, lumbar strain, there's, you know, sciatica, you know, there's disc problems, um, there's, you know, SI joint problems. All those are in, you know, that category. But we, you know, what I learned with Descartes too was there was another category. 
that was the opposite. And there's not very many of those people. But if you learn a word from this interview, spondylolisthesis, and that means that usually someone born, their vertebra have slipped forward. And there's a few rare cases where it's back or sideways, but 90% of the time the disc is slipped forward. So if you do the kind of things that help people that have the rounding issues, which is mainly, you know, some type of backbend, it, it'll kill you, you know? So it's like mm -hmm. not everybody has the same stuff, but the majority of the back problems are people that bend forward too much. So they need to have more training on doing types of back bends. And, you know, that begins with taking a deep breath. If you take an inhalation, that's a back bend. Right. So starting with the molecule, you know, and then working your way up to the Cobra or the Warrior One or, you know, like that is where you go. But that was, um, you know, Deskatar gave me a lot of information about that. He didn't talk about anatomy very much, but he, you know, he knew the conditions well and knew where to guide me on what to do. Mm -hmm. What's the molecule? Well, what I mean by the molecule, I mean the very basic unit like, you know, you let's say you take the cobra, mm -hmm. and that's a position that you would get a lot of people into eventually um, that have, you know, the most common kinds of back problems because they're reversing all the bending forward. But a lot of people can't go right to the cobra. So let's say they raise their arms overhead, that's a back bend. Mm -hmm. Well, the, if you go down to the molecule, the, the simplest back bend is to take a deep breath. <laughs> yeah okay because that arches you and that's a deep breath in the way that we learn in this lineage uh you know it's one of the things that makes this lineage unique is that uh the the foundation of it is this particular breathing pattern where you're inhaling into the chest first and then allowing the belly to expand and then exhaling that, that, from that, the belly that was, right? a, that, that was a really big deal because uh, when I went to India the second time, there was a magazine from France. And, you know, Deskachar's first students were from Europe. They were from Belgium and France. Uh, there's a man named Claude Marshall who saw Deskachar every summer for probably almost 30 years. Hmm. And so this French magazine, yoga magazine was on the desk and it said, Deskachar, the yogi who breathes backwards. Huh. <laughs> you know and that that still persists right like i had a client last week who came in and um she's younger but she's been exploring yoga for a while uh -huh. and she was asking me about yogic breathing and yeah. her idea of yogic breathing was this kind of belly breathing mm -hmm. and so it opened up this whole discussion on like what is yogic breathing and is there one way to breathe that's correct and all that but i think there's still this idea that breathing in yoga is this expanding the belly and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, it does really change things for people when you introduce this new breathing pattern that opens them up. Well, if you look at the history of yoga, um, probably the first yoga that was really accepted was during the hippie days in the 60s, and it was Shivananda people. It was Vishnu Devananda, it was Satchitananda with integral yoga, and they taught three-part yoga breathing and there's nothing wrong with it mm -hmm. i mean it's not that it's bad it's got its place right yeah but especially for people over 40 think about this what happens is everybody starts to internally rotate mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's just part of aging. You walk in a room, you see people that look older, their heads coming forward. So what chest-to-belly breathing does is that it externally rotates you from the very top down, from the very beginning. Um, so, uh, And then Krishnamacharya had found all these sacred texts that talked about it and backed him up about what he was doing. And then Leslie Kamenoff, when he teaches his courses, um, you know, he has that outlined, you know, that what the text is and all this stuff. And uh, so Krishnamacharya reached way back with his wisdom. And it makes sense. But like my opinion is that if you're on the ground and you're doing stuff for yoga therapy for the back, belly breathing is, is, is good. When you're standing up and you're doing a group class, for people like over 40, especially, um, that chest to belly makes a lot of sense. And so when I did the, the you know, that classic international bestseller, like Yoga for Dummies, which is the third edition, <laughs> yeah. um, I show all three of them. Okay. Because they all, they each have their place. So it's not that the, the three-part breathing is bad. It's just that the other breathing is superior, especially... Uh, when you, the body starts to change around 40 um, and the, you know, it, it helps to externally rotate you from the very beginning. Uh, the other thing too, though, um, Brian, is that, you know, when people first come to you um, for yoga, everything else they've been doing, every other kind of exercise is inhale, nose, exhale, mouth. So just to get them to breathe through the nose uh, in the beginning is the first, in my opinion, the first step more than just breathe out here, breathe there and all that kind of stuff, just Mm -hmm. to get people to convert to breathing through the nose. And then I call that focus breathing. And then the part two is have them draw the belly in when they exhale. And then after that, I start going for the chest to belly. And then eventually they the top of the line is to do chest to belly with Ujjayi. Hmm. Um, and that, that's like the long range goal. But when somebody comes in to see you privately or in the group class and you throw all that on them on the first time, it's pretty hard. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I definitely, I do work with people progressively because I see it time and time again, if you right off the bat, ask someone to do Ujjayi breathing only in and out through their nose and fill your chest on the inhale it's, yeah. <laughs> it's so much for people to take in and it often yeah. actually creates a lot of anxiety for people because for it the does. first time they're starting to control their breath. And so they might start to feel quite restricted. Like they're actually I, not breathing I would say enough. If you just tell them to just simply get them started with just breathe through the nose uh, on the inhalation and the exhalation, you know, that's a big deal. And you can't do that breathing when you swim or you're drowned. <laughs> <laughs> This is true. Yeah, there's a, there's a time for technique and a time for That's just right. just breathing. <laughs> well, going back to when um, you returned to LA with all this new knowledge and you started to integrate it into uh, the medical model that you had access to, and you started to really create what we know now as yoga therapy. I'm wondering... Um, 
how you started your career, uh, like how you started to find clients when there wasn't this model that already existed? Well, what really helped me, Brian, was to hook up with Dr. Leroy Perry. I mean, it's the International Sports Medicine Institute. He he was Olympic doctor like five times. I mean, this guy, people are flying from all over the world for him. He's like a genius. And he was always inventing things. And uh, Leslie Kamenoff also got his start there. Um, and when Leslie does his talks, like he's pictures up there, you know, as one of his mentors. And uh, so he he had a lot to do with it. And what made the shift for me was that Deskachar and Krishnamacharya taught from a model of yoga and Ayurveda. And I started shifting towards yoga and integrative medicine. And so that's what how this course I have at Loyola Marymount uh, developed, the Yoga Therapy Rx program, 13 years ago. Um, I had this knowledge and then there was a man named Chris Chappell, who was the head of yoga studies at Loyola Marymount University. And how you could talk a Jesuit Catholic school into having a yoga studies program, I don't know how he did it, but he did. Yeah. And uh, so um, his wife came to see me. Um, she had a back problem, and she was referred to me by John Friend. <laughs> mm. She was at a conference with him. And he, he was living out of state, and she, she said, go see Larry Bain. And so uh, she did, and then she says, you know, my husband has this thing. And so then he and I met at the Spectrum Health Club and said, let's do it. So I did a one-year pilot study at my own Samata yoga studio and got all the bugs out, and then we brought it over to LMU, and that was like 13 years ago. And now this October, which is only a few weeks away, we're going to start, you know, the, the program again so anybody out there who's you know has a 200 hour teacher training and interested in yoga therapy i think that the main attraction is that it's the only one um other than the one there's another master's program uh in maryland but the only school is often these yoga therapy courses that's hooked up with the university and you know, because yoga therapy is a new field, the more credentials you can put on yourself, you know, the better. Mm -hmm. So uh, we really are lucky. We have like 27 of the very best uh, yoga therapists, you know, and doctors and so forth and so on. It's all on weekends. It seems to work out pretty good. So I'm, I'm real proud of that one. And um, um, and like you say, it's starting in October. If anybody out there is interested. Uh, they can contact us. Yeah, and LMU is just a really great place to study. I was there. Uh, you studied there with Ramaswamy, right? Yeah, I was there for five weeks. So I was um, living with someone in Marina del Rey and riding my bike uh, down there, you know, every day. And that's then where after... I live. Is I live yeah. in Marina del Rey. Yeah. Well, yeah. When I was down there, um, you know, so and then I had a gig uh, teaching at Golden Bridge in Santa Monica. So every oh yeah, you know after class I would get on my bike and pedal down the beach all the way to Santa Monica and teach. And, um, part, one of the things I wanted to do while I was there was look you up cause I knew you were in the area. And, uh, so I think I sent you an email or called and you invited me to one of your group classes. Yeah. Tuesday class. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, you know, it was like super inspiring for me because your yoga studio is, I think, like a converted garage in the back of your house, right? In like a residential well, it, neighborhood. It went through several incarnations. It started off as a garage and then we doubled, tripled the size of it. It's the oldest backyard yoga studio in Los Angeles. It's going on 39 years. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so let's call it a backyard yoga studio. I love that. And I was super inspired by that because it seemed to me like you had found this really great balance between um, establishing like a home community of practitioners. And, you know, you've got this great gig at LMU. And, uh, you know, you do some traveling, but it just seems to me like you've found kind of a perfect career life balance there. And, um, you know, I love that the the people who were there seemed to be people that you'd known for a really long time. Like it seemed more of a community of friends. And like after class, we all sat down and had tea and just kind of shot the breeze about movies or vacations that people yeah. had been on. And I just, you know, that model I think is just fantastic. And I'm wondering like, if there was a point that you you had a vision for this, the path that your career would take, like, or is it something that just kind of unfolded as you went? No, I, it was a vision. You know, uh, um, what happened just briefly is that when I got my yoga teacher, Raghavan Das, he used to have these um, juice fasts on the weekend with a yoga retreat. And then he told me, if you really want to do it right, there's a place in Hemet, California, where you do two weeks. And so on my vacation, I went there. And uh, it changed my life. The, and that was my first big mentor in, in integrated medicine. It was Dr. Everett Loomis. He was the father of holistic medicine in America. And so... He had been on a sojourn, and he we became friends. And just in that two weeks, I knew I wanted to change my life. So he gave me a list of contacts from all over the world of, you know, famous health people. And so uh, that's when I went to McCall's and said I quit. And they said no, we'll give you a sabbatical. And and that's when I took off. But when I took off, I I, I kept a tape recorder with me, you know, a little micro, and I would talk in the evening about how I felt and all these things. And I envisioned having a place that was a like holistic center and also ha- having integrative medicine there. And, um, and I wasn't sure whether it was going to be like a, a, a giant place or a backyard place, but all through my visiting at that time through Europe and through India, a lot of the teachers taught where they lived, hmm. including Deskachar, including Iyengar. You know, they lived where they taught. And the funny thing is, when I came back, I told McCall that I had changed my mind and I, and I was going to quit. And they were mad. And so I went to the bank and I said, um, I would like to refinance my house uh, because I wanted to make a yoga studio in the back. And they said, what's your profession? And I said, I'm a yoga teacher. And they said, how long? I said, two months. (laughs) We recommend that you come back (laughs) in a couple of years. So I went to McCall's and I said, look, if 
I'm just honest about this, and and I go back to work for you. Uh, I want to be able to do this as well in my backyard. Is that okay with you? And they said yes. Hmm. So then I went back to the same bank and said, "Yeah, my, my precious, I've been advertising executive for the last twelve years." <laughs> and <they laughs> so said, I was able to refinance. <laughs> yeah, and then you built your back. Yeah, studio. I did, and and then we ended up doubling the size of it. And you know, a lot of the teachers from all over the world have slept in that room, like Indra Devi, Deskachar, A.G. Mohan. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they slept in that room. Oh, man, that really so, touched, that touches me that I was, because, um, you know, I definitely felt a vibe there. It felt like a place where a lot of yoga had happened, you know. Oh, it definitely has. And, you know, and uh, there's, you know, a lot of pictures up for to remember these things, you know. So, um uh, you know, it is something special. And also, there is something special when after a yoga class, instead of being rushed out the door and everybody's sweating and, you know, just to be able to sit and talk, you know, mm-hmm. about whatever uh, for 10, 15 minutes is like, you know, pretty nice. Well, I think that's something that is really kind of lacking in the modern yoga culture is what happens when you hang out with people after a class. There's an integration of your personal work during the yoga practice into the community um, where, you know, when you do your yoga practice, right, you're open, you're present with people. And then to allow that time for people to be with each other in that state, I think then helps them bring it back to their family and their workplace. And No question. And let's say that you have an actual... A public place, you could set aside a little room, small tea room, so that you know one class could come out, another class could come in, so you wouldn't be holding people up. Or the other way is just that you know there's no magic amount of time that you're supposed to be in a yoga class. I mean, here in LA, everybody's always an hour and a half, hour and a half. Eh. I mean, corporate classes are 50 minutes, Rancho La Puerta is 45. So, you know, you could have like an hour and 15 minutes or an hour class and then have tea for 10 or 15 minutes and then the other class comes in. You know, that could be worked out mm-hmm. because it is a community building. Um, one of my dreams, and it's funny, there's a man that's been coming to my classes who does franchises. And it would be, you know, my, my focus on, you know, I have yoga therapy, but the other focus is on the yoga for over 40, over 50, you know, midlife and beyond. Mm-hmm. And I take that on the road. You know, people bring me in like all over the country. I'm probably like six times a year going somewhere and teaching that. But no one has ever like did a center for that kind of, you know, catering to people over 40. I think that would be something, you know, all the way from the reception area to whatever just all focused on that um, would be trippy. Mm. Yeah, especially now that that's uh, such a, a booming demographic too. Oh my God. Yeah, because a lot of the yoga spaces I think would be quite intimidating for people, uh, you know, 40 plus. I mean, it all depends on how, what kind of physical physical condition people are in, of course, right? But in general, I don't know if a lot of yoga spaces are that inviting for older people. 
when people tell me about, you know, they're, they're somewhere where I don't know the people, I say, just go and sit out in front of the class and see who goes in, who goes out. <laughs> mm. <laughs> right. Get a sense yeah. if that class is going to be yeah. good for you. Like, do you yeah. see yourself reflected in the... Yeah. Are you yeah. reflected with these people coming in and out of here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it's one, one definite way to, you know, to do it. Yeah, you'll know for sure, like right away. <laughs> Something else for the people out there who, who follow your um, uh, recordings and so forth, uh, your podcast, that are yoga teachers. One of the ways that you make a living as a yoga teacher is private sessions. Guess mm-hmm. what age bracket can afford private sessions? <laughs> Not no, the young and restless. <laughs> Yeah, it's a really good point. Yeah, no. So if you learn something about 40 or 50 plus, midlife and beyond, then you can help a lot of people who can afford to see you privately. Mm-hmm. And this is something I wanted to ask you about. Um, how much of your time is split between seeing private clients and teaching publicly? Well, it used to be like um, a different um, because... Um, I saw a lot of people privately. Um, I would see like 25, 35, you know, in a week. You know, a chiropractor sees that many in a day. But, I mean, when we're spending an hour with somebody, that's a lot of sessions. Um, yeah. But then when I – and I only taught like two or three group classes. Um, and I taught a class in Malibu for 25 years, you know, uh, just giant celebrity loaded and all that. Um, but then when the school came along with Loyola Marymount University, it really took my energy. So when that changed, I went to teaching like one class a week, which I still do, 38 years on Tuesday nights at 7. At UK. <laughs> wow. And uh, then um, I see maybe only like about six privates, uh, and the rest of the energy goes towards the courses on the weekend. And it's 11 months out of the year. It's a lot of energy, and yeah. I'm there every weekend. Um, and for the first five years of the course, I sat in on every single weekend. Hmm. Uh, and then uh, now, what I do is I go in and I introduce the teachers, just so I can be connected with the students. Yeah. And um, and I often go to lunch with the teachers that come in, um, and stay. You know, I care. I'm just staying. You know, connected, and then. Also, when I come in, there's usually somebody who pulls me aside and has a question for me. You know, mm-hmm. like when the students will say, "Larry, what about you know?" So I'm I'm always open for those type of things, and well, because over a period of 13 years, I've always tried to improve the course. Yeah, I mean that as like a career arc seems like a natural progression to me. You know, as you're getting older, you're consolidating your wisdom, and um, you know you're putting together these things which will become your legacy. I'm sure the Yoga RX program is going to continue long after you've retired. I Um, hope so. (laughs) I think it will. Uh, Especially, you know, when we're talking about that demographic that's growing and really in need of something like a yoga therapy. But um, I'm wondering, like, uh, so 25 to 30 private clients a week, how did you build that up? Do you have any advice for 
how teachers who are interested in one-to-one yoga can find those private clients? Actually, I do. Uh, is to make connections with the doctors. Hmm. Uh, go out into the community and have a nice enough brochure that you can leave behind. And, you know, these days you can make them one at a time on your, on your computer. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to buy 5,000, you know, you can make a real nice thing to leave behind with a color print. And, uh, the people that are the most open to yoga are chiropractors and mm. the medical doctors and the chiropractors have never had a great rapport. You know, they don't like each other. Um, but they all like the yoga teachers, you know, medical doctors, chiropractors, but the chiropractors have the most action, uh, for, um, you know, yoga teachers, in my opinion. And that's when I started with Dr. Perry. And then I went to several chiropractors offices. After that, I also went to MD offices. So one of the things to do is to go in introduce yourself in the doctor's office, but make an offer for a free session with the ma- office manager because mm. you're not going to get the doctor right away you know he you know he's busy so if you if you give a free session to the office manager yeah yeah she's going to tell the doctor that you're terrific so that's that's one of the ways to make it happen the other thing is that there is a kind of doctor that a lot of people don't are not aware of because it's an odd name and they don't have a lot of uh, public image and so forth. It's called a physiatrist. Physiatrist. P-H-Y-S-I-A-T-R-I-S-T. Hmm. That's a doctor of physical medicine. A physiatrist can give insurance to anybody they feel like. So if you work in their office, they write off the yoga therapy in the office. Yeah. So you know, be open to having, you know, your own place, but also to maybe go into the offices of um, the health professionals, like especially chiropractors. What I have found is that the, there's there's some great physical therapists as well, and, and we have uh, two of them teaching in our course. We have 27 teachers. Um, but physical therapists are a little um, competitive with us. Uh, toward the end, see, a yoga therapist can't treat anybody is in acute condition, so they go to a physical therapist. But after they're out of acute conditions, the physical therapists often hang on to them a little longer, right into the territory of yoga therapy. So there's a little bit of friction there. And I don't blame the physical therapist because they went to school for like four years to get a doctorate and spent a fortune and some of these people come out and take a teacher training and maybe one yoga therapy class and call themselves a yoga therapist, you know. So, but mm-hmm. uh, we don't usually have that problem from our course at Loyola Marymount, the Yoga Therapy RX course, because we have the credibility uh, with the teachers and they know it's a long course and, you know, they can't just bop in and bop out. Um, the other thing now is the International Association of Yoga Therapists who Richard Miller and I are the co-founders 38 years ago or 28 years ago. Um, They're now, they raised all the standards. So they're at the brink of licensure if they wanted to. So they've increased 
all the requirements, for instance, in the yoga therapy program at Loyola Marymount University, they have to do 100 more case studies with a mentor. Wow, yeah. That's made it challenging for the price and for the time and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it took physical therapy 100 years to become licensed. Yoga therapy is at the verge of that right now at like 28 and a half years, 29 years. So everything's moving faster, but uh, they're not sure what they want to do because not, most health professionals are not happy with insurance. Hmm. In what so way? they're looking at, are there, is there any other way, you know, to do this other than the normal insurance licensing? Yeah, but whatever it is, they're getting ready for it. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit about the difference between a yoga therapist and a physical or occupational therapist? Oh, sure. Uh, the main difference is that a physical therapist um, takes people in acute pain. A yoga therapist can't go near something like that legally. Hmm. So. You know, someone gets injured and they're in really acute pain, uh, they should go to the physical therapist. Um, I get people call me like once a month, hey, doc, I'm crawling around on the floor, I can't wait to see you. And what I say to them is, don't see me, you know, <laughs> go see Dr. Morris or go see Jerry Browerman or go see, uh, you know, um, uh, Lori Rubenstein Fazio, you know, and I'll see you when you're out of acute pain. So yeah. that's the biggest difference. And the occupational therapists are more for lifestyle, you know, helping people uh, like, you know, how to get out of their bed. How do they, you know, um, maybe uh, how to how to do stuff with their hands or, you know, uh, where the physical therapists are more like you know, with the spine itself and, and, you know, back injuries and those types of, mm-hmm. as I understand it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, following your career from like that yoga for dummies book, which uh, <laughs> I guess it's still being reprinted. Yeah. That's amazing. Third edition. Yeah. Uh, now in 14 languages. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So, it seems to be a focus of your approach is to make the teachings of yoga accessible to a wide range of people. And I might even call it a, a kind of secular yoga approach. Would that be correct? Well, we would, uh, I don't know. I mean, you can call it what you like. I mean, you're, you're very good at analyzing <laughs> things. I, um, I think it's, uh, it's more for a user-friendly approach okay. to yoga as opposed to the real strict Indian, you know, and, uh, you know, Descatar was very good about that, making it user-friendly. Um, and, you know, like with things like it's okay to bend your knees and, and, and your arms, you know, move in and out of a posture before you hold it. Um, really do focus on the breath and, um, those are things that, uh, you know, function is more important than form. Like the biggest one that you see is that 
we all learned in the beginning to have your feet together for the mountain pose, Tadasana. Yeah. Teskatar said, separate your feet. Yeah. How does that feel? You know? <laughs> I know. I have to, I cue that in every class because people, you know, I say, come to the front of your mat. A lot of people put their feet together, squeeze yeah. their legs together. And so yeah. I, I just ask Lift people. Lift their kneecaps. That, yeah. So like soften the knees, bring your feet, hips distance so you feel more stable and relaxed. But I guess like where I was leading with that question was, I'm just wondering, is there a place for the the spiritual or more esoteric aspects of yoga in yoga therapy? Well, I think that you can find the spiritual esoteric aspects of yoga in anything. You know, it isn't that regular yoga is more, you know, I mean, it's like, I would think that, there's more of an opportunity for the esoteric things in traditional yoga than there is in yoga therapy because, you know, yoga therapy is more focused on people having problems. Um, and now, if one of those problems happens to be spiritual, mm-hmm. then, you know, you, you fill in there, but you basically give somebody what they need uh, when they don't fit in a group class. Right. Yeah, something specific to their needs. Yeah, so it, it isn't necessarily that it, one is more uh, spiritual than the other or something like that. It just depends on what they need. But I'm just, yeah, I guess I was just wondering if in your approach to yoga therapy, if there was a place for that spiritual aspect to be present, if it's uh, a part of what the person needs. I think it's always there. You know, we always begin with the yamas and the niyamas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's part of it. Even when I teach the business class, I talk about yamas and niyamas, and it kind of boils down to, you know, you, you treat people like you like to be treated, and there are a lot of um, ways to follow that in spiritual teachings. You know, there yeah. are a lot of spiritual teachings that give you different variations of that, and then you know, there's yoga sutra to go very deeply into the mind. Um, so the beauty of yoga now is that <clears throat> you can sort of enter someplace and then find yourself attracted to some part of yoga because it's huge. It's vast. Yeah. And you'll never finish studying it. You know, uh, Christian Machari was always still studying. And, you know, so. Uh, yeah, what's really nice thing about it is that you can start at somewhere and end up in a totally different place and it's still called yoga. Yeah, and you're still in the yoga world, I know. Yeah. So you're telling me you're 74 now. Yeah. You're telling me that this exploration has no limit? <laughs> Is that what you're telling Absolutely me? Absolutely not. Man, that feels amazing to be uh yeah. to be involved yeah. in something that is so vast and that will always have and something new. And you know, new. this this is really true. I um I would like to uh, teach until I die. I'd like to die teaching. But yeah. not anytime not not anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> be a great way to go out, you know, teaching. So I don't I don't really want to retire. And, the final uh, shavasana, you know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope uh you still got many years left with you. Um, Thank you, so do I. Yeah. And okay. uh, also I wish for you, you know, more continued success, but I I want to tell you that I liked you from the very beginning. 
I think you always had like a unique approach and um, you'll do really well as far as you want to go, brother. Oh man. Thanks so much. I just, one more thing before we go. So when I visited your backyard yoga studio back in 2014, I think it was in Marina del Rey, um, you're like, you're so nice and welcoming and you took me on a tour of your studio and there's these pictures all over the walls of you with um, different yoga masters and celebrities. And there's one photo that like, I'm never going to forget. And it's a picture of you doing a headstand at the North pole. (laughs) Am I remembering this right? Is that what's going on? Yeah, you are. Okay. You got to tell me a little bit about that story. Well, when I was teaching in Malibu, um, there were a lot of celebrities and famous people out there. And one lady who really uh, became a serious student, um, her husband was at one time the head of uh, music at NBC. And he had all kinds of celebrity friends in the entertainment industry. And then they had another friend who was that type of a celebrity only in investments. He was like a investment counselor. <clears throat> and he was a member of something called the uh, YPO. Um, and um, it's like, it, it's the Young Presidents Organization. So then after 40, the, 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 the same organization becomes WPO, World Presidents. So now we're talking you know, the wealthiest people in the world, like John Templeton of the Templeton Fund was in this organization. Mm -hmm. So every two years, they would do something wild and crazy. And so this particular year, they were going to take a Russian nuclear icebreaker to the North Pole. And uh, this man flew in to meet me because my friends, the Okins, told him about me. He flew in from the East Coast took my class and then decided, okay. So they asked me to be the yoga teacher on this cruise. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is like unbelievable. What an opportunity. Yeah. And so what happened though, is that we fly into Marmonk, you know, Russia. And here's this thing that looks like a 747 airliner, only it's a boat. And we get on there and, because of the people getting on, they had all of these famous pastry chefs and enough French wine to sink the boat. And, uh, you know, like uh, because they were older, they had like the world champion bridge players and that kind of stuff, you know, and experts on polar bears and, you know, and me. So, <laughs> so we, so we take off and we start heading out and all of a sudden it hits me we're going through ice. And so it's like, like this. So my yoga class is scheduled in this gym. And every morning in the yoga class, the boat would start shaking because we're breaking through ice. So I had to develop a high seas braced wall yoga program. (laughs) (laughs) Like hands on the wall to steady yourself. I had this whole chart with me in the Russian hat and all this. So, we finally get to the North Pole and they have a black tie dinner at the North Pole. (laughs) 
unbelievable. Wow. So we were, everybody was getting out of the boat because they were in a safe place. So I came up with the idea, oh my God, what an opportunity. <laughs> so I, and, and I had it documented by the ship captain. Uh, and so I have a certificate that this was, you know, the first documented headstand at the North Pole. I tried to get into the Guinness Book of Records, but it was such a, a you know, mess to try and go through all that. So I, you know, it definitely happened and I have it backed up. But they were kind enough to take the picture, and uh, uh, it was pretty good. I did another one at the Great Wall of China. <laughs> mm. So, but that was the classic. I mean, how many people get to go to the North Pole and do a headstand? It was like, wow. Yeah, there's something perfect about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you noticed it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely it's in my memory forever. Um, <laughs> And, you know, you're just a guy who knows how to seize an opportunity. And that's super inspiring to me. Like, you've really made your own success uh, through looking for these opportunities, making your own, and these chance encounters that, you know, could only happen if you were set, if you set yourself up in the right place at the right time, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the things that I've always been very good at is recognizing uh, talent in people. And I saw that in you, oh, you have thanks. that gene. And I really encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. And for the future, just try to get yourself as much as you can onto the internet mm -hmm. with things like webinars and those type of things, because no matter where you live, you know, you'll be able to s spread your message. Yeah. Thanks a lot. And if you ever decide to rent out a portion of the backyard yoga studio, then I think me and Debbie would love to move down there. <laughs> you know, we can All take right. we can take care of your garden. I can take over the Tuesday night <laughs> class when you're out of town. You know, no problem. We'll keep it in mind, brother. <laughs> Just want Thank to put you. it All out the, there. <laughs> All the very best to both of you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Larry. And I hope to see you down the road soon. All right, brother. Take care. Until next time. You too. Bye. Bye. -bye. Thanks for listening. If you value conversations like this one, there are a number of ways you can support the podcast. You could leave a review on iTunes or share this episode with your friends on social media. You could also become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash Brian James Teaching, where you'll find a ton of yoga practice resources. You could also leave a one-time donation at paypal.me forward slash medicine path yoga. Any amount, no matter how small, is a big help in covering the costs of hosting and producing this podcast. A special thanks to everyone who's reached out via email or social media with your kind words of support. Hearing from you guys personally gives me the energy to keep going and lets me know that there are real people behind the download stats. So with that, I send you all a big virtual hug until the next time we meet on The Medicine Path. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.